0: Father, we thank you again for church, for the community that it provides for us, that we are able to uh, come apart and come together, that we're able to uh, gather around uh, the fellowship of your word, uh, to be led by your spirit. Help us, Lord, to be diligent in applying the things that your word teaches us, to think through our circumstances of life, and to make sure we are honoring you in every way that we know how. Help us to be uh, dependent upon your grace and to have hearts for you as we lead our children, and we pray for them today that you would bless them, protect them, and show your grace to them. We pray in jesus name, amen. amen. Continuing uh, with our discussion about teenagers uh, and um, we've talked about some goals five we 're going to be dealing with five goals today we 'll be dealing with the fourth one we 've already talked about focusing on the spiritual struggle in their lives. Again, it's easy to get caught up in the material struggles, grades and uh, cleaning your room and being nice to your sister and all those things that are very, very important, but those are all really expressions of their spiritual life as well. They're not disconnected. These are not separate things, but we need to understand that the real focus should be in regard to the spiritual struggles that they have uh, also developing a heart of conviction and wisdom. What do they believe and why do they believe it? And understanding the difference, for example, in between boundaries, boundary issues and wisdom issues. And then we've talked about understanding and interacting redemptively with the culture itself, how to face uh, all the uh, pressures that are coming in, how to interpret and understand the world we live in, how to take their faith and apply it to their own lives and circumstances. And today, uh, number four, we want to talk about developing a heart for God in your teenager. Now, as I was working through this, I'm I'm thinking, you know, this is one of those things that uh, almost all of us, if we have teenagers or if we've had teenagers, recognize that this is one of the most difficult things. For one thing, it's hard to evaluate sometimes, or when we do evaluate it, and we see deficiencies and see things that concern us, uh, that can be a bit overwhelming as parents, and frequently we don't know what to do or how to do it and and how to implement this. So we want to look at some strategies here. But, of course, the thing it takes most is uh, diligence on the part of parents, a commitment to God, and a heart for God in parents themselves. First, we are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to diligently teach our children. And we can't do that. Uh, We can't diligently teach them to have a heart for God if we don't. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's not just something we learn to say. It's what we believe. That is the main reason. That is the primary goal that we have And that our children should have is to glorify God and enjoy Him. And of course, the Heidelberg First Catechism, I think, brings a lot to the table as well. What is your only comfort in life and death that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own? Remember, this is what you're trying to inculcate into your teenagers, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins, and redeem me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. There it is. That's the goal. That is what we're seeking to do so that when we ultimately let them go, send them out the door to establish new homes and careers and wherever else, whatever else God has called them to, that that remains the primary thing. It's not the secondary thing. It's not the fifth thing. It's the primary thing. And so if these statements are true for you, and they certainly are, then, of course, they're also true for your children. Instilling a heart for God in your teenagers before they leave your home, then, is central to our task. Living for some other purpose, according to the Bible, is foolish. It's misguided. It will lead to ruin. Living with a heart for God reflects the purpose for our creation, and that, then, is why we are here. God made man, God made woman, and he made the family to glorify Him. And so that's why we're here. Unfortunately, many young people do leave home who don't have hearts for God. They may profess to be Christians, but are either worldly in their outlook or, at best, apathetic about their faith. And unfortunately, in many, there is little evidence in their daily lives that they have a real hunger for God. And so while they might not consciously or openly, uh, deny God, other things in fact rule their lives. They have other loves. And again, as we began this series on child training, I said your children do what they do because you let them, uh, and perhaps also because they're imitating you. You know, do you have a heart for God? Is this central in your life? I mean, like every day central. It's 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 part of your conversation. It's part of how you resolve conflicts in your home. It's not uh, that we fight over here, husband and wife, until one of us gives up or gives in. Uh, it's not uh, until one of us dominates the other one, but rather we bring it before God and we resolve this in a way that's pleasing to Him. We live in fellowship. We live in a communion of love. We live before God on a daily basis. And I believe, frankly, that, that where there are problems, there, there can certainly be problems within a, an individual uh, young person that come from other influences in their lives. But we, I think we're too ready to blame all the other influences rather than to understand that we provide the primary environment for our kids. So, what's gone wrong? If the Lord is central to our lives, why is it so common that this value is not passed along to our children? And so again, I'm relying heavily on Ted Tripp's book. Some of you have picked that book up, and if you hadn't and would like a copy, I'd be happy to to get one. It's called Age of Opportunity. And I'll be again drawing greatly from that as well this morning. And so uh, Paul David Tripp suggests three possible reasons for this problem. And I'm going to add a fourth one. Uh, first, he says, the problem is familiarity. The old saying goes that familiarity breeds contempt. And so uh, I was thinking about this. You know, this is kind of a lack of gratitude. You grow up in the Christian faith. You grow up in a Christian home. You grow up in a Christian church. You either homeschool or go to a Christian school. You're surrounded by this. You have so much given to you. But the real problem is a problem of ingratitude, and I thought about this. It's only people who have things that are ungrateful, and and yet we're given all this, and our kids are given all this. It's not perfect, of course, but it is tremendous, it is great. Uh, when Paul talks about what advantage was circumcision, what advantage was it to be born in a, into the covenant household of an Old Testament family? And he says, much in every way. And so we forget that, and I think our kids forget that. We tend to take for granted the things that have been regularly a part of our lives. For example, we live in, uh, we live lives of fabulous wealth in the Western world uh, compared to most of the rest of the world and certainly compared to the vast majority of humanity that has ever been on the earth. And nevertheless, we often grumble and complain because we don't think we have enough. Somehow, we need to break through the ordinariness that characterizes Christianity to our teenagers. We need to help them appreciate the enormous privilege that it is to be born into a Christian family and to be part of a faithful church. And by the way, I'll just note um, here that I do think one thing you ought to consider with your teenagers are ways to expose them to people and cultures that are not Christian, whether that's through something local, getting involved, or working with needy people, or some kind of a foreign mission trip that genuinely takes them to places where they can see a part of the world that has has been unaffected by the Christian faith. These are powerful things oftentimes in the lives of our kids uh, that can be helpful. And so the normal Christian home is actually anything but normal in the world. We have failed our children if we let them leave our homes without a sense of awe over God and the glory of His grace. For some, we need to humbly, uh, some parents, we need to humbly recognize that the reason we haven't passed this along to them is because we don't have it ourselves. As Peter writes, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins our teenagers will not understand that redemption is a tremendous gift if they don't see us appreciate it ourselves so the first problem uh, that leads to this issue of kids who leave home unequipped and don't have hearts for God is this problem of familiarity second lifestyle Deuteronomy 6 as we've talked about a number of times envisions a lifestyle where we are with our children, uh, you shall talk of the Scriptures when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The old agrarian lifestyle lent itself to this, where your children are with you all day long, uh, you know, from the sunrise to sunset and then back again. You you work side by side with them, whether they were little children at uh, one phase or later when they're a little older and they're out working in an agrarian setting. But the modern lifestyle is radically different. Families, frankly, rarely spend time together. Our homes are often more like motels where we arrive at night to sleep in separate rooms, only to leave early the next day. Most of our children spend most of their waking hours outside the home. And as they mature and as they develop friendships and they participate in other activities, they find jobs and so forth, they will spend less and less time with their parents. And then at 18, hardly the age at which most children have reached full maturity, most teens leave home for college never to live with mom and dad again. This separation lifestyle affects our ability to nurture teens as God has called us to. If we're going to raise adults, then of course we ourselves are going to have to be focused and disciplined. We will need, therefore, to, a lot of this we can't do anything about. It is the world we live in. Uh, you don't, you're not agrarian. You're not at home on the farm. You've got to get up and go to work and the, there's school. There's all kinds of things going on. And so, um, for some, of course, um, uh, we will need to arrange opportunities, for example, to talk in relaxed ways about significant things with our teenagers. Not just have the conversations as they're getting in and out of the car or walking through the room, but those occasions where we actually have conversations. Let's sit on the back porch, let's, uh, let's talk. Not, not one of those kind of sit down so I can lecture you talks, but conversations. Enjoying one another, showing respect to one another. It doesn't always have to be about an issue. It can just be life. It could just be, uh, tell me what's going on, you know? How's, how's life? Um, what'd you do today? What, what's got, what's coming up on your schedule? Just those kind of casual interactions where you learn to have a conversation and, instead of these short snippets. And so we will all need to evaluate the choices we make for our families and the degree of busyness that we permit as the norm. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you are busy? I mean, I say that all the time, and I hear many of you say that. We're so busy. Well, one of the things we have to be busy about is engaging our teenagers. In fact, if we're never, if we're never busy with that, then we're too busy. So something else needs to go. Something else is not, there are, there are things that have us busy that are not as important as that. We simply cannot mentor people that we're never around. For some, this will mean turning off the TV or having regular meals together. It might mean simplifying our lifestyles or cutting out some activities. Ask yourself, is this thing, whatever it is, Is this thing contributing to or working against giving my child a heart for God in this world? It might mean developing the habit of having regular daily conversations with your teen, going to their room, showing interest in their lives, and sharing our own lives with them. It might mean less travel for you and less focus on your career. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and loses teenagers? It might mean we are confessing our own selfishness as we've lived closed and isolated lives because we are too busy. For all of us, it will mean asking whether we have passed down to our teenager a love for God and a commitment to live for his glory. The third thing that Tripp mentions is hypocrisy. Again, as a reason why our teens leave home and... Often forsake the faith. Children who have parents who have vocalized strong commitments to their faith but who have not lived consistent, consistently with it tend to despise the faith. They come to see the faith that restricted them but apparently did not restrict their parents. Parents who were very quick to bring the rules to bear on them but didn't apply the rules to themselves. You're not going to speak to me that way, but then they saw you speak to your wife or your husband that way. Or, you're, not, you're going to show respect to authority, and then you don't show respect to authority. All those kinds of things, remember, you're always teaching, especially when you're not teaching. Especially when you're not sitting down and giving a lesson. All those other times in between, you're still teaching. Um... So living consistently does not mean living perfectly, but it does mean living in such a way that it reveals that God and His Word are the most important things to you. And it means living sincerely. Here are a few ways this shows up. Parents who talk about the grace of Christ but are verbally condemning as they discipline their children. Parents who talk about the forgiveness of Christ But who live with an angry, bitter, and unforgiving spirit toward their children or others. Parents who talk about seeking the kingdom of God, but in reality are caught up in their own materialism. They are concerned that their daughters be thought of as hot or their sons as cool. They might not say it out loud, but they really are. Um. Other versions of this can be seen in other forms of achievement that become idols. You know, their talents, their athletic prowess or something that really is what's important to us far more than whether they have a heart for God. Um, So when we do that, it's always communicating to our children what we really think is important. Now the fourth one is one that I'm adding to this list is legalism. Well-intentioned, zealous Christian parents think that they can produce good children. Uh, but it's not good children that we're after. It's God-loving adults that we're after. Sincere Christian parents can crush their children's spirits, demanding conformity, if not perfection. It... uh It uh, it is an idealism that is run into the ditch. It's parental control that is exacting, but not gracious. No matter what they do, it's not quite good enough. Um, Children raised under these conditions often bolt and run. It's not unusual for them to be filled with bitterness and resentment toward their parents. Colossians 3.21 warns, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So, search your heart. How do you react to the things that I've just mentioned? Are you defensive, ashamed, discouraged? Well, don't be, because that also would be a functional denial of the gospel. Uh If you see your sins and failures, you don 't have to justify yourself to anybody, not to me, not to God, not to anybody you don 't have to live with a heavy burden of guilt or regret either, but you do, uh, and you don 't have to give up. The gospel gives hope to you and your children. So repent, confess and receive his healing grace. Ted Tripp, uh, not Ted, uh, Paul David Tripp, by the way, Paul David Tripp has a brother named Ted who also writes books about child raising, so I'll sometimes get them confused. Um, so Paul David Tripp writes, If you look at yourself and say, Yes, the life that I have lived before my teenager is in many ways a contradiction of the gospel don't give in to thinking that there is no hope. Go to your teenager and confess. Say, you know, son or daughter, the way I have lived and responded to you has often been a contradiction of how I have taught you to live and how God has responded to me. I know that this has often discouraged you and made you angry. I know that I have been self-righteous, unloving, condemning, and unforgiving, and I'm here to ask you for forgiveness. I have come to realize that as your parent, I, am not repre- I have not represented God very well. I ask that you would pray for me, and I would welcome you to come to me whenever you think I have responded to you in a hypocritical and unloving manner. I have committed myself before God to live in a way that makes him and his word attractive to you and to your brothers and sisters. Please pray for me. And then he goes on to say, I am convinced that these are healing words that God can use to fundamentally alter your teenager's appreciation for God. It is never too late to confess and repent. Don't give in to defeatism. Recognize that God is able to restore what the locusts have eaten. So, signs of a heart for God. God. What does a heart for God look like in a teen, teenager's everyday life? So this is going to help you look at your teenager and say, are these qualities here? So um, does, what does a heart for God look like in everyday life? The central characteristics of a heart for God is, uh, is its deep, sincere hunger to know and honor God. And this needs to be contrasted with a pharisaical performance of Christianity's external duties are living for temporal benefits. Um, Isaiah twenty nine thirteen says, Therefore the Lord says, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments uh, the commandments of men. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So, self-righteousness and uh, you know, going through all the outward things is not enough. It's our hearts for God first. Godliness is more than keeping a list of behaviors. True godliness, true godliness follows out of the heart, and it produces a harvest of good fruit. Um. Uh, Heart for God is reflected in, in a catalog of behaviors, attitudes, relationships, and activities that reflect a personal pursuit of God. This is not the begrudging performance of a duty, and it's not motivated either by threats or guilt or ultimatums and parental manipulation. We are seeking to mentor a personal pursuit of God. I can't emphasize again, probably the most important thing is that they see it in you. They go, yeah, dad's flawed. Dad doesn't always do it right, but he is trying, and he loves God. Now, that ought to be the one thing they know. My dad loves God, and he loves my mother. And he, he fell down yesterday. He lost his temper yesterday. And then when he did, he did the next right thing. He came and asked for forgiveness for having done that. Okay, so this this is the goal, is that we model for our kids what we want to see in them. And I think we often don't stop and look in the mirror and recognize that often the problems we're seeing in our kids are really problems that we have. They magnify it. Okay, We've learned to hide it a bit. We've learned to to make sure, especially when we're in public, to make sure other people don't see it. But they see it. They see us when the guard is down, and therefore it is critical that we recognize this as the most central thing. Uh, We are seeking to mentor a personal pursuit of God, and we are seeking to navigate and stay out of the two ditches, remember, of legalism and passivity. Okay, The, the rigid you know, we're going, we've got all the rules and we got it all figured out and, you know, we're we're going to force everybody into that mold or the the passive whatever, you know, you can't do anything with them, you know, how kids are, Uh, the excuse making, uh, both of those are forms of selfishness that we have to avoid Uh, and really selfishness for parents and their teens. So, Signs of a pursuit of God. Let me give the five here first, and then we'll look at some strategies to work toward implementing these. These I'm going to give kind of quickly here. Uh, number one, there will be an independent life of personal worship and devotion. Whereas it's not just us At this point, if especially if you've been doing what you should be doing when they're younger, now it should be something they do on their own. You don't have to constantly tell them. Now, again, we're going to get to some strategies here in a moment. But again, this is how you evaluate. How is my teen If We're going to say, right now, does my teen have a heart for God? Well, does he like God's Word? Does he pray? Does she pray? Do they do do the fundamental things that Christians do? Is there a hunger to know and to grow? Uh, And so then, second, there will be a desire for corporate worship and instruction. It's something that instead of sitting through church where they're, you know, spaced out or, 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 you know, not engaged. And one way to know that is, do your kids ever bring up anything from a lesson or a sermon or uh, something they've read uh, and want to talk about it? Say, well, that was good, or I didn't understand that, or something to indicate to you that they're actually listening and engaging in what's going on with church and with the people in church. Third... A teenager who has a heart for God will also pursue fellowship with the body of Christ. They want to be with God's people. Uh, they, and I don't mean just hanging out with your friends, but I mean actually fellowship, communion, if you will, with God's people. I want to commend some of you young people. I've noticed that some of you, and I want to commend some of you parents who are helping your young people do this, of taking some time to walk across the room and talk to someone other than their best friend or their little group of friends. Remember, there's, there's a great opportunity to, to teach that to your kids. You can do it today. Say, you know, five minutes is what I want. When church is over. Five minutes, go find somebody else to talk to that you hadn't talked to, a grown-up, somebody you hadn't talked to, somebody other than your, fr- your close friends, and have a conversation. And if they don't know how to do that, give them three questions to ask. You can teach them to do it. It's, it's really simple, but it's really profound. It not only changes them, it changes whoever they're talking to, and it develops a relationship that they didn't have before. And if you do that every week for 52 weeks, it is phenomenal. And we can talk about lots of other things that if you did them on a weekly basis or in some cases a daily basis... And in some cases, a monthly or quarterly basis. I mean, different things require different levels of involvement. But if you realize, you know, it's like you've heard me talk about, if you make your bed every day, that's a little thing that spills over into other things you do in your life. And we tend to think, oh, it's such a little thing, it doesn't matter. I'm not interested in little things, I just want big things. Parents and kids, these little things multiple, like the snowball going down the hill. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. By the way, that's not just true of the good things you're doing and the good habits. It's true of all the bad habits, too. They're going to all get bigger. They're either going to get better. Your life's going to get better or it's going to get worse. It's not going to stay the same. You're always going somewhere. There's always a trajectory. So, uh, fourth, a teenager who has a heart for God will be relaxed and open to discussion about spiritual things. Four, or fifth, a teenager has a heart for God will approach decision-making from a biblical perspective. They want to know what God says. They want to know what the right thing to do is, not just what do I want to do, not do I just want to make my case because my, other, my friends are doing it, but there's really a desire to know what God's will is in the matter. So some strategies for encouraging a heart for God. Uh, parents, make family worship a priority and make it engaging. Draw them in and get them engaged. Don't just turn it into you spending your five, ten minutes talking to them, but engage them. Draw them in. The Proverbs and the Gospels are very good places to start if you don't know where else to start. I really like using the Proverbs in this uh 31 chapters of comparison between the fool and the wise man. And being able to draw out life lessons, that's what the Proverbs are for. It's wisdom literature. You're trying to give them wisdom. So get out the wisdom literature and use that. Look for opportunities. Uh, Second, uh, look for opportunities to point your teenager to God. Don't let them live in functional atheism. You know, a lot of people think about it. If we could just go back to the 50s, right, when TV was clean and all that, and we could go back, some of you are old enough to remember shows like My Three Sons and Ozzie and Harriet and the Andy Griffith show. Wouldn't it be great if we could go back to those? You know what? That's what gave us the 60s. Those shows were functionally atheist, by and large. Uh, God was irrelevant, he, didn't, he wasn't part of anybody's discussion. And we might have had a few of those where somebody went to church occasionally or, or something like that. But by and large, all of those were teaching us that God has nothing to do with daily life. So uh, look for natural ways of pointing to the presence, power, and provision of the Lord. You can do that when you're in the car. Uh, you can uh, do that when something's on television, or you're reading a book, or you're sitting at the dining table. There's all kinds of ways, but you've got to be on the lookout for it. Number three, be positive and Christ-centered in your use of Scripture. Um, there are many teens who develop a negative attitude toward the Scripture because of the way their parents have used the Bible. I remember watching the the, the Waltons. You remember that TV show with John Boy? Some of you remember that. Um, and the kids would get, on a couple of shows, I remember kids would get in trouble and get sent to their room by the mother or the grandmother and made to memorize Scripture as the punishment for whatever it is they did. Uh, I might also add on that show, the father never went to church, only the mother, the grandmother, and the kids. And so when a young boy became a teenager and Sunday came around, he wanted to stay home with dad and, you know, cut some wood or something, something men do, uh, be manly, because only women and children go to church. That's for sissies and for the effeminate. And, and again, Scripture was used to punish the children, and that's not the way to use the Bible. Um, scripture is not a club to inflict guilt or to put them down, or to condemn, remember, the Bible says itself that the truth is always to be spoken with love. I don't know what number I'm on. Number four, I think. Be willing to use yourself as an example of the forgiving, enabling and, develop, and excuse, enabling and delivering the grace of Christ. Be willing to use yourself as an example of the, in, of the forgiving, enabling, and delivering grace of Christ. I think sometimes we're afraid to do that. Uh, but to say, you know, I'm really thankful the Lord's been kind to me when I've messed up, when I sin. Yes, you've sinned today, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to deal with that. But I've been where you are. Unfortunately, I've been there too many times. But I've been so thankful that when I went to the Lord, He heard me, and He forgave me, and He's helped me. That's encouraging. That's a, a great message to send. And Sometimes, you know, be particular about what you messed up on. Um, we sh- and so we uh, should see... Uh, here's a, a quote from Tripp again. We we should not see ourselves as pictures on which our children are to gaze, but rather as windows through which they can see the glory of Christ. Um Next, be willing to ask for forgiveness, accountability, and prayer. Even your parental failure can be used by God to soften the heart of your teenager. Uh, don't don't always be up on your high, high horse, up on your perch, looking down. Um, come alongside. You know, this is not a diminishing of your authority and position. It's with, in that it's what. Even Jesus, who is perfect, came alongside. He showed mercy and kindness and grace to those who were far beneath him. He humbled himself and became a servant. And so you can be a servant. Jesus was a servant and yet had all authority in heaven and on earth. So in no way diminished his authority to be a servant to his disciples. Um. Don't let those moments of selfishness, irritation, harsh words, impatience, and anger just fade away. You know, you lost your temper, you got mad, you said something sharp to your kids. Go to your teenager and confess your faults and model for them what you want to see in them. It isn't your weakness that will get in the way of God's working through you, but your delusions of strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Pointing, uh, point to his strength by being willing to admit your weakness. Be a model of prayer without ceasing. Make prayer a regular and important part of your family life, not just at the dinner table. Not even you know I think some of the most important prayers would be uh, spontaneous prayers. By that I mean, here you are, you're you're dealing with a situation with your teenager. It could be something that they've gotten in trouble about, but it could just be a situation in life that has nothing to do with trouble, but it does have to do with wisdom. And to stop and say, let's pray about this together. And they pray and you pray. Maybe it's a very short prayer. But you bring God into this. Again, we don't want to be functional atheists. We live before Him. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And so, uh, don't just talk with your teenager. Pray with them. Don't just tell them that you will pray for them. Pray for them right now. Right, right on the spot. Um, I remember many years ago uh, in a church prayer meeting, there was just a small group of men praying. And uh, my son was, I'm, I'm guessing he was probably about seven or so, and he was in that prayer meeting, and the, the men were praying with such earnest, uh, not mumbling their prayers or just reciting the lead, guide, and direct kind of thing, but real earnest prayers. And I remember him walking out of the room and saying to someone else, another adult, he says, he said, they prayed like they meant it. And that's what we ought to do. It's not just saying a prayer. It's not perfunctory. It's, that's where they see your heart, right? They see you coming before God and then be an example of hunger for God. Let them see your commitment to the Bible, the church, fellowship, hospitality, service, prayer, worship, and whatever else you can think of. Part, as I was talking about them having a hunger for God, of course, when we come for corporate worship, uh, it's critical that they see us engaged actively in worship, not not uh, dozing off or you know, uh, treating worship in a casual way ourselves. So again, there's an opportunity for us to be an example. If we're doing our family worship and preparing them and training them, all of that is geared ultimately toward when we come together. Uh, as a as a larger family, as a corporate as a corporate worship, they now have they've seen you model this at home. Uh, they know that you have a heart for this, and it's not just going to church. But obviously, as I mentioned in that previous lesson, there are things you teach them about their behavior in church and what to do and how to put, maybe help. Maybe they need to take notes, or we, we talked about having that conversation on the way home or on Sunday afternoon about the lesson or the sermon. What did you learn? Or that kind of, and I know a number of you do that with your kids, and that's really helpful for them. I think another important aspect of that is that we understand that what we're doing here is connected with what we're doing at home. These are not separate uh, things. These are not slices of the pie. A heart for God is the pie, and everything else is a slice of that. And so what we're doing at home and what we do here are intimately connected. And we've talked about this quite a few times, about the table. Really, the whole worship service, the whole liturgy is a model. Here we come on the first day of the week. We come together to be reminded of what we're going to do when we go out those doors and go to our house. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. We're going to confess. We're going to sing. We're going to eat at tables. We're going to fellowship. Uh, we're going to read the Bible, we're going to be instructed, we're going to do all the things that we do here on a Sunday morning at our house, and then we're going to come back next week and have choir practice again. <laughs> we're going to practice as the people of God to go live the liturgy. Not, we're not here to do the liturgy, we're here to do this practice so we go out the doors and live it in our lives. And so there's a great opportunity also to show them why this is a complete worldview. This isn't segmented parts of our lives, but what we did on, and I do this as a pastor, I may sit down with somebody that I'm counseling and I might say something like, hey, I, I know you're baptized, and I saw you at church on Sunday, and you took communion, which I, so I know you made a fresh commitment to Christ on Sunday, and here we are on a Thursday talking about your family problems, and I just wanted to remind you of that because all of those are relevant to what we're about to do here. You're Christians. You're committed to Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. So now we're going to do this in a kind of a private way and apply the Word of God to your situation. So connecting all this as a whole, I think, is really, really critical. All right, we're about out of time, so I'm going to read this quote and close with this from Trip. My father was very faithful in gathering us for daily family devotions. He was not a teacher, But he would read a passage to us, and then we would all pray. I remember one period of time when my older brother Ted was working first shift at a factory. He had to be there between 6 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. Dad got the rest of us up at 5 a.m. so that we could read and pray together, and then the family would go back to bed as Ted went off to work. I don't remember much of what we read, but I remember how... The unaltering commitment to family worship impressed me. I remember thinking that it must be very important because nothing got in the way of our family time of reading and prayer. My parents did the same with Sunday worship. It was a non-negotiable part of our family schedule. The only thing we ever did on Sunday morning was attend our church's services of worship Even when we were on vacation, my parents would find a place for us to worship on Sunday morning. They demonstrated a commitment that pictured the importance of these spiritual priorities. We need to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the instruction of your word. We love our teenagers. We pray, Lord, you would help us as parents, grandparents, and friends to show them that love and to show them our hearts for you, and we long to see them have hearts for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.